the church is the body of Christ that represents his plan and his purposes and his will for a fallen world. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who love God passionately and love others unconditionally. We are his body. Welcome to Living a Legacy, featuring the Bible teaching ministry of Crawford Lorenz. Great to be with you on this Father's Day weekend. And dads, our hats are off to you. Enjoy your special day. Well, Crawford has logged over 50 years in Christian ministry. He currently heads the organization Beyond Our Generation, a Christian leadership mentoring program. He's the author of such books as Leadership as an Identity, Lessons from a Life Coach, For a Time We Cannot See, and two books co-authored with his wife Karen, titled Your Marriage Today and Tomorrow and Developing Character in Your Child. The messages we feature on Living a Legacy come from Crawford's many years as pastor of Fellowship Bible Church of Roswell, Georgia. We are currently at the beginning of a several-part message series called His Church, which highlights the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. Now, last week, Crawford presented the first half of his message, Our Incomparable Christ, the second half in today's program. If you're just joining us for the series, the previous messages can be heard on our website, and I'll have details at the close of our broadcast. Our text is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Now, one of the characteristics of our incomparable Christ was that all of creation was designed for Him and by Him. Let's learn more. Here's Crawford Loretz on Living a Legacy. For Him means that Christ is the final cause or focus of creation. Not only only is it by Him that He was the source, but all creation is for Him. All creation is for him. That's the way it was at the very beginning. The Grand Tetons, they exist to worship Jesus Christ. The Rocky Mountains, they exist to worship Jesus Christ. The sun, the moon, the stars, they exist to worship Jesus Christ. Table Mountain in South Africa where the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean come together, breathtaking sight exists to worship Jesus Christ. That's the reason why Paul would say that on that great day, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. What are you talking about? On that great day, all of creation will remember why they exist. For the worship of Jesus. And all of creation is for him. In him, this dominant prepositional phrase, in him, all things hold together. What does that mean? That means that Christ is the conserving cause of creation. The world, not figuratively, not metaphorically, the world is literally held together by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one, the only one through whom all things came to be, and also the only one by whom they continue to exist. Let me get practical. Every day, atheists and avowed enemies of Christianity are blessed and sustained, ironically, by Jesus Christ every single day. Yes, the ones that come on TV 
and say, and no, I'm not afraid to die and go to hell. <laughs> and the reason why they are blessed and sustained by Jesus Christ is because the greatest act in human history is the cross. And he is sustaining the universe so the universe will hear the glorious message of the gospel. No one, no one has ever done that or will ever do that. Our Savior is incomparable. And not only is he the creator of the universe, he's the head of the church. Listen to these words here. Verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the head. Listen to me. I can't tell you the number of, of Christians who have awful theology when it comes to the church, has poor, poor understanding of what the church is. And I don't blame y'all for that. It's, it's, it's us right here. We have led unwittingly people to believe that somehow or another, uh, the church is a reflection of our corporate desires for what we want God to do in this group. But, but, but the church is the visible embodiment of the presence of Christ in the world. So when he says that the church is his body, uh, it's an illustration, but it's not so much just an illustration. It is a reality. That literally, literally, we are the embodiment of Jesus Christ in the world. We, we, we are his presence in the world. And here he says that Christ is the head of his church. Now, I don't need to press into this just a little more. As his body, we're to reflect his heart and his passion and inclusion. The church does not reflect what we want to do. People get it twisted. They think, and they get all bent out of shape, that the church ought to do whatever conference they've been to and brokered some ideas, and they come back and they think, we ought to do this, you ought to do this, you ought to do this, you ought to be this, you ought to have this, you ought to do this and this kind of thing, and this church over here does that, and I don't like this over here, and you ought to have this kind of program and this kind of thing. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be relevant in all, all that stuff, but we're missing something, we're missing something. The church is not a composite portrait of everybody's best input and ideas. The church is the body of Christ that represents his plan and his purposes and his will for a fallen world. We're not the carriers of little cute slogans and statements. Jesus liked people, so we like people too. And it's not what we're all about. But we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who love God passionately and love others unconditionally. We are his body. And by the way, it works both ways. This church does not exist for the elders to come up with great ideas and say, y'all do it. Because the church is not to reflect what even leaders think. But the church, the role of an elder is to get on his face before God and find out what it is that God wants to do. God wants to do. Jesus, the head of his church, wants to do in this church. 
But we have reduced the church to, a, to, to just a, 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 another representative organization that is a carrier of great, relevant, transferable, strategic, wonderful, attractional ideas where people like us. I'm not saying it's all wrong, but Jesus is the head, head of his church. A human being does not lead this place but the everlasting creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, leads this joint. And we're members of his body. That ought to collectively take our breath away. Paul is singing this great crescendo here. And he describes Jesus as firstborn from the dead. Verse 18. He's the firstborn from the dead. What, what, what does that mean? Well, firstborn from the dead means that Christ was the first to rise in an immortal body. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He was the first to rise in an immortal body. It also implies that his resurrection really marked his triumph over death. That's what Hebrews 2 verse 14 uh, means when the writer of Hebrews says that he destroyed the one who has the power of death. Implicit in that is that he's also destroyed death. I said a few weeks ago, that's the reason why as followers of Christ, we should never be afraid of death. No, I don't, we shouldn't like dying, but we should never be afraid of death. His resurrection guarantees our victory, our victory in this life and our victory in the life to come. We've overcome. He's overcome. Jesus never, ever will die again. He rose to never die again. In fact, that's what Hebrews 7, 16 says, that he lives by the power of an indestructible life. Our victorious Savior, death could not hold him. Death could not capture him. Verse 19 says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. <laughs> the, the, the word fullness carries with it the implication of completeness. He says that all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, I do have to say here, there, there is a controversy in Philippians chapter 2. Scholars have debated this for, for years and years and years about what does it mean when Jesus it is said that, that Jesus emptied himself when he became a man. Some, some conclude, well, you see that Jesus, Jesus, gave up some of his attributes when he became a man. That's problematic if you believe that. If he gave up his attributes, that means somehow or another he reduced who he was. I'm in the camp that says no, no, what the emptying means was not that he gave up his attributes, but he chose to veil the use of some of those attributes. But it did, he did never stopped being who he has always been. Completely God and completely man. 
Thus Paul says, in him, God was pleased because all the fullness of God dwells in him. I think that this is behind the statement when Jesus is baptized and he comes out of water and the heavens open up and God speaks. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My nature walks with you. And by the way, the word dwell there is actually is a verb. It's a verb in the Greek text. The word dwell there, now I know I'm getting pretty, pretty, pretty granular here, but the word, the word dwell there is in an interesting tense. You can't, you don't see it in the English text the way it's translated. Uh, dwell there is not a simple present tense, neither is it a simple past tense. Dwell here is in the aorist tense. In Koine Greek, the, the Greek, common Greek that was used to write the New Testament, the aorist tense means uh, historic permanence. Historic permanence. It, it refers to that, this means that the full, complete deity abides lastingly and permanently in Jesus. I don't get it when people, I've had these conversations for years, when people have said to me, the Bible never teaches that Jesus is God. And I say, have you read it? <laughs> you may not want it to teach that, but I, I, you, you can't read this section. He says, the fullness of God permanently and lastingly dwells in Jesus. This is one of the most clear and powerful descriptions of Christ's deity in anywhere in the New Testament. Beginning at verse 20, and I'm going to read verses 20 through 23. Jesus is described by Paul as the reconciler of all things. He says, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing all, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister for the sake of time, uh, I, 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 let me just make three observations about this reconciling of all things, which I think summarizes these words here in verses 20 through 23. The first thing that I would say is this. What he's saying is that people are reconciled to God and not God to people. People are reconciled to God and not God to people. Why is that so important? I think, I think sometimes we think that the goal of the gospel is, my, is where I am. And that somehow or another, you know, I don't need to make too many steps toward God. God needs to make steps toward me because he loves me. That ain't true. We are in need of forgiveness and transformation, not God. So in Christ, God does reconcile all things to himself. The provision has been made, but we come toward him. Secondly, the price of our reconciliation was the blood of Christ on the cross. In this great creator of the universe, this great sustainer of the universe, this head of the church, 
would die on the cross in our place and for our sin, would pay the price of our alienation so that we might come. And then, of course, thirdly, in verses 21 through 23, he says the goal of this reconciliation is twofold. Number one, that our, it is our complete forgiveness and cleansing only found in Jesus. And then secondly, there is a motivation to demonstrate the reality of a sincere relationship with God through Christ to continue, to continue with him. I began by saying that this text of Scripture was given to us to affect our thinking in our hearts. I did wonder to myself, and I, I wrestled with this, how, how would I end this message? And I recall the message that I had heard online many, many, many years ago. It's by S.M. Lockridge. S.M. Lockridge was an incredible orator and preacher. He was a pastor of uh, Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego. And the name of the sermon that he preached was, That's My King, Do You Know Him? And I wanna, I wanna take an extended excerpt from this because he articulates what I've been struggling to try to say from this text. Listen to these words. The Bible says my king is a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews, that's a racial king. He's the king of Israel, that's a national king. He's the king of righteousness, he's the king of ages, he's the king of heaven, he's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder, do you know him? He's enduringly strong, he's entirely sincere, he's eternally steadfast, he's immortally graceful, he's imperially powerful, he's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son, he's a sinner's savior, he's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's awesome, he's unique, he's unparalleled, he's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder, do you know him today? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tired. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. Well, my king is the king. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? His office is manifold, his promise is sure, his light is matchless, his goodness is limitless, his mercy is everlasting, his love never changes, his word is enough, his grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could, could describe him to you, but he's indescribable, he's incomprehensible, he's invincible, he's irresistible. Well, you, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't 
outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out that they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. You know him. That's our king. So how do you think and feel about Jesus? Colossians 1, 15 to 23. She calls us to worship him. She calls us to love him. And she calls us to have supreme confidence in him. Do you know him? Do you know him? All that he is has come here so that we might experience him. And all you need to do is say, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin and I trust you as my Savior and as my Lord. For some of us who are believers, what this text unearths is that we've got some idols. We got some idols. We've allowed other things to compete with this incomparable supreme savior. And there's some repentance that needs to take place. We're more confident in the zeros that we have in our bank account. There are surrogate other sources of salvation that we have been going to. And truth be told, our worship has been divided. There's no one like him. And if he is all that Paul describes, then I drop to my knees and throw up my hands and say, you're Lord. Thank you, O God, for this astonishing text of Scripture. Lord, may we never get over Jesus. May he be the theme of everything that we are because he was the theme of your redemptive history. Oh God, I pray that even today we'll drop to our knees and open the Bible and slowly and prayerfully read Colossians 1, 15 to 23 and worship the King. In Jesus' name, amen. Crawford Loretz here on Living a Legacy, Our Incomparable Christ, the title of today's message. A great challenge to reprioritize our commitment to Christ based on all He is. I have no doubt that when many of us get to heaven, we'll wish we would have spent much more time getting to know our Savior and appreciating all that He's done for us. Let's serve our incomparable Christ well while we have the opportunity. We're in a series called His Church, and we're getting great insights from the Apostle Paul on how we as the church should relate to our Lord and to each other. Now, if you missed out on part of today's message, you can stream all of it on our website. Go to livingalegacy.org and look for the link Past Programs. There's also a link to connect you with our MP3 library of many of Crawford's messages, including our recent series on the Holy Spirit titled Supernatural. These messages can be downloaded there for free. Start with livingalegacy.org. Thanks for taking a moment to let us know you're listening each week. When you connect with us, you help ensure that this broadcast continues to be heard right here. Look for the contact link at livingalegacy.org. 
Well, thanks for studying with us today. For Dr. Crawford Loritz, I'm Bill Davis, and we'll look for you again next week right here. This program is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.